Hi, my name is Nat Buteyatanaset. And my name is Michael Waits. I'm so excited to introduce you to our guest today, Sam Ree. He's the founding partner, chairman, and also CIO of Endowas. So Endowas is a Singapore-based wealth platform that lets you invest towards your life goals and exclusive access to the best-in-class funds in the world at low cost. They recently closed a Series A funding round led by Lightspeed Venture Partners and with participation from SoftBank Ventures Asia as well. So they have come to the scene very strong. Hi, Sam. How are you? Hey, and so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me today. No, thank you for spending time with us. And it's great to have you as well. So to get the conversation started, maybe we can share about yourself to our listeners, you know, what did you do before and what led you to found Endow us today? Yeah, just to very briefly on myself then. So I've been in finance all my life. So within finance and technology, the finance guy, I don't code. So I don't know technology that much from an engineering perspective. But that's why I need a wonderful partner and great team to build a business like Endow us. I've always been in finance on the like public market equity space, mostly. 27 years in total, 17 of which was with one company called Morgan Stanley. I've heard of them. You've heard of them, Michael? <laughs> peripherally. Yeah. So both two, two Morgan Stanley alums here in this podcast. But yeah, so I was there for a long time doing multiple roles in Hong Kong and then in Singapore. So I came down to Singapore in 2005 with Morgan Stanley Investment Management, so the asset management arm where I was a portfolio manager for Asian and emerging market, public market growth equities. And then I became a chief investment officer. So I did some asset allocation and you know macro stuff. And then I became the CEO for a few years, running the business across Asia as well. But then I left Morgan Stanley and pivoted to the space of financial technology because I was done with my kind of time in institutional business. And it's so liberating, isn't it, Michael? Very. <laughs> Incredibly. <laughs> and uh, doing something a lot more interesting, much more meaningful and purposeful. And yeah, a lot more like exciting, you know, unleashing our creative spirits and stuff. And so building a business was not what I was initially going to do. I thought I was going to just remain an investor in the fintech space. So I made several investments using my vehicle called Vovio to invest in some of these things. But then I realized there were like two big gaps in the fintech space. And one was wealth which I felt wasn't being done properly by the so-called robo-advisors out there. And as an investor, I look at them and I didn't feel like I wanted to invest in any of them. So that's why I thought wealth was really exciting. The other one was capital markets, like investment banking. At the time, this was back in 2006, 7, right? 2016 and 17. And there weren't very many companies doing this in the right way. It was very like offline. And so I thought that these two areas were right for disruption. And I met my partners, Greg and Yuning, who are the co-founders and been building Endowas into what it is today for the past four years. That's awesome. You mentioned that you didn't see anything that you wanted to invest in in the wealth space, but how about in the capital market space, just out of curiosity? Did you see anything that you liked there? Yeah, not too much even back then. I mean, since then, we've had a lot of like interesting companies coming out, like basic stuff like Carter, all the way to like much more esoteric stuff that's in you know capital market, private securities, alternative debt. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's going on. Yep. But I think back then there was really nothing, especially like when it comes to disrupting the investment banking business. And we're still looking for like companies through searching through LinkedIn, like connecting with people. And 
it's like so offline, it's so old and it's so like high touch. It's amazing that we're still not really solving that from a technology perspective. Yeah, it's pretty retro. Yeah, it is. Still, yeah. So you mentioned that robo-advisors weren't fixing the, the problem the way that you think makes sense. Can you tell us more about that? Like what was the, the gap in the market that you saw? Yeah, I think robos, especially in the US when they started, I think it looked pretty good. Like uh, Betterman. Both front. Right. Yeah. And then in Canada, there's other guys coming up in Europe as well. And so I think that initially robos were very simplistic solutions, very core passive strategies at really low cost. So they were charging 25 basis points, right, right. for their products or solutions. Some people say that was too low, but you know they're competing with the traditional players and passive instruments like ETFs, which are readily available in the US. So it makes sense, right, to do that. Initially, they had some success, but you know they have limitations. And then you bring that model, and most of the Asian business model initially are just copycat models, right, of right. the US. That's right. And it's not really, really solving for the problem because. We don't have the solutions that can build into an effective low-cost portfolio. Like we don't have local listed ETFs, like based in Sing dollars here in Singapore or Hong Kong dollars in Hong Kong, right? Even available here. And so when you build portfolios off of inefficient stuff like the US listed ETFs with the taxes, withholding taxes, the FX friction cost, and then you know you're building a, a cost on top of it, and a lot of robots here charge like 80 basis points, 0.8%. Or 0.6%. It's like ridiculous. It's almost like more expensive than mutual funds. You know, they charge 2%. But that's one thing, the cost and efficiency. But the other thing is that a lot of robos here in Asia have taken that, you know, philosophy in the wrong way. They've actually created fund management companies. And they're all, if you look at it, licensed, they're all licensed as fund managers. Right. right. What they're creating is just a, a fund, a product. And some of them, they build a macro kind of asset allocation, active management kind of portfolio based on some algorithm. And then there's other guys who are building like a risk fund or a, you know, a growth fund. And then other guys in like Korea or other markets are actually building algorithms to beat the market, right? Alpha generating or risk parity kind of strategies. And that's the wrong approach. I think, first of all, in Asia, we just don't have even the basic stuff. And we need to build a platform business for wealth. And that's what endow us, and that's how endow us really differentiates itself because we are building a total wealth platform. So we have flavors of a robo, but it's not a robo advisor, which is normally a single product kind of strategy. And you know, when you're trying to generate alpha, you know, Michael's been around, so you know, it's, it's very difficult for active managers, and I've been an active manager all my life, to really beat the market consistently over time. And so I think it's just the wrong approach to solving the problems of investing in wealth. Mm, yeah, that's true. And when I look at robo-advisory companies in Thailand where I'm based, mm. some of them would do active investment, like you said, meaning that they'll do algorithms that switch in and out of different funds for customers. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that when you switch in and out a lot, there's a lot of front-end and back-end fee that funds take from the customer, from their capital, whenever the transaction happens. Generally, that's because they want to deter people switching in and out, right? Because it's mm -hmm. not like stocks when you can trade uh, so easily. But yeah. with the robo-advisory, that makes the cost really high if you do active investment like that. And it can go up to 1% to 2%, which is a lot compared yeah. to the returns that customers are getting from equity market. So in your opinion and, and from your experience, 
So how do funds and brokers make money today? Maybe we can talk about like different models so that the listeners can understand what the market is today versus how Endowas is doing it differently. Yeah, I guess still in Asia, the predominant way to access funds is not ETFs because there aren't enough good ETFs in local markets in your local currency, whether it's Thailand or Singapore or any of the major markets here in the region. It is really just through what's called unit trust or mutual funds, right? And this is something that people need to understand is that ETFs are not all passive. It's not all low cost. It's the same thing, effectively, because mutual funds are open-ended mutual funds, right? That's unlisted. ETFs are open-ended mutual funds that are listed. That's the only difference is the listing and the unlisting. So you can have an ETF that's very active, like a China internet fund. Right. And it's also very costly. It's like 80 basis points. Oh, I did not realize that. Yeah. So ETFs, are, you know, there are passive index ETFs and they're low cost. That's great. Those are wonderful solutions. You should use that. But there's a lot of stuff that's out there that are not really good quality stuff. They're very active and they're very high cost, which defeats the whole purpose. So all it has is liquidity because it's listed. You can trade daily. But even in the trading, you have intraday like spreads, bid-ask spreads that is costly. Sometimes the NAV of the underlying fund may be different from the price at which it's trading again. So all these like intricacies about ETFs and the pros and cons of it should be understood. The simple fact is there are now in the world more ETFs than stocks. There's like really? tens of thousands of ETFs now because there's so many launched and there's more ETFs than stocks and therefore they cannot all be good stuff, right? So you need to be very discerning, I think, when you're doing that. The reason unit trusts and mutual funds get a bad rep is because traditionally they've been high cost and why people get excited about ETFs. But the unit trusts and mutual funds are high cost, not because they are high cost in structure in the way it's built, but it's in the way it's been distributed. So the traditional distributors of mutual funds are banks or brokers or these kind of fund platforms like IFAS, Fund Supermart, Dollardex, Poems kind of thing. And they charge a really high fee for you to buy a mutual fund. They kind of like, Honestly, just between us, they rip you off, right? <laughs> they try to get away with high, as high a fee as they can get away with. Just between us, yeah? Just between <laughs> us, right? I don't know who else is listening. But a lot of people are listening. <laughs> oh, is this a podcast? No. <laughs> I forgot. Um, I thought it was just friends having a chat. Yeah. So the distribution channel is, is really what's wrong with the system. It's not the underlying funds or the fund managers who are causing this problem. It's the banks and the brokers and the guys who think they own the client and they can get away with charging a high fee. So we need to change that. Sorry, Michael, you were going to say something? Yeah, I'm just, obviously, you know, I understand your background and I understand the equity markets and I'm so excited about a business that's, you know, trying to look at all the foibles of the way a traditional investment management company worked and say, not only do I want to make it cheaper, which is relatively easy to do, but I want to make it better in the process of making it cheaper, right? I mean, anything can be cheap. And actually, let me back up for a second. Anything can have a low price, but a low price does not necessarily imply cheap, right? Yeah. So Precisely. you're trying to do both things at the same time, which I love. It's fascinating, right? For someone who's come kind of through the same background in a parallel path. So I ran a portfolio trading desk, mm. which meant that I dealt with Merrill Lynch investment management, Morgan Stanley investment management, like Goldman Sachs asset management, capital, fidelity, all these companies, right, that are selling these products. 
that use us to then buy those products either at risk or on an agency basis, right? So I get the way this business works. And I love to see somebody essentially starting from scratch, somebody who knows the ins and outs starting from scratch and saying, if I could do it all better, what would I do? What would it cost? And I'm curious about the distribution model you talked about, because you said before, that's the part that has to change. So how is that changing? Yeah, no, Michael, great points. And Absolutely. And that's why we always say that when we approach fintech, we have to be not only deep tech, but deep fin. Yeah, right? exactly. Really understand the financial. Right. Because unlike other industries like e-commerce or other industries, people forget that financial services and you know, people leave out the service part. And right. That's how they get away with all the fees, right? And right. The PR <laughs> because they don't talk, they don't think about the service part. They only think about the finance part. But anyway, that's a different topic. Finance companies are not really, sorry, I lost my train train of thought actually on this one. It's okay, we're just talking about the distribution thing. Look, one of the biggest problems is that when you're working, and I know this from working at Goldman, you know, Goldman Sachs Asset Management and Goldman Sachs itself from a broker standpoint is going to try to sell its own internal products before it sells anybody else's, right? So there wasn't this sort of multi-distribution points and there was competition among the brokers to sell their own products almost never on price. But anyway, so we were talking about that distribution thing. For me, that was always slightly problematic because you kind of had to believe through a leap of faith that your products were better, even though they may not be in a way. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. No. So I think the, the problem with the industry, as you said, is low cost is easy for you know the institutional part of the business. But for the retail investor, even getting low cost is a struggle. Right, because you don't have any bargaining power. Right. So, first of all, getting low cost is also a struggle. I mean, I just want to point that out. But doing it better is even more important. And as you said, I think when you're deep in, you understand the mechanics, how the distribution uh, system works. You know why costs are very high, and you can really tackle it, as you said, from the ground up, and really try to solve for the problem instead of like tackling like superficial issues that doesn't really solve the problem. And that's what robots do, right? They're not really solving a problem because they don't understand what the problem is. And so it really is important that the distribution needs to change. And in the developed markets, that's happened. So, you know, regulators have stepped in, protected retail investors who don't have the bargaining power and said, look, commissions for paid for selling financial products is illegal to the retail space. In Singapore and across Asia, that regulation hasn't come in. Only in the region, maybe Australia has introduced that. And they've grandfathered in the old funds, but the new funds you have, you cannot. And that's a wonderful thing because it does two things. Not only does it lower cost, but it completely aligns the financial service company to the best interests of the client. And this is this concept of fiduciary duty, right? That we're losing in the financial service industry to do what's in the best interest of the client. And so instead of pushing certain funds or products that are high margin for the bank or the broker, you start selling what's the most suitable product and fund for the investor and the consumer so that you can lead, that can lead to better outcomes so that you can have, you know, protect your financial future and build wealth for yourself and your loved ones. So that whole process begins with a reassessment of the problems of the industry, really mostly related to the distribution issues and the high cost of distribution. If it's zero commission, then what is the business model around selling to retail? So it's not zero commission. It's, you know, people like fund platforms say we're zero sales charge and 
zero commission, but then behind they're collecting the fees, right? Right. So we want to bring that forward and lower it. So oftentimes they're getting paid 0.5 to 1%, oftentimes, you know, 1.5%. And then they charge an upfront sales charge for selling these funds like the banks do. All of it could add up to anything between like 0.5 to 2.5% that the bank or the distributor gets forever, every year for doing absolutely nothing. Regardless of profit or not profit, yeah. Yeah, whether the client made money or lost money, they take that cut. So we are absolutely transparent and say, okay, you just pay us a flat fee. We call it the endowed access fee, but it really is about advice, access, and solutions that are suitable for you. And it's the whole digital platform in a package. And we charge anything between 0.05% for our cash smart solutions, 025 to 0.6% on a range. But all of it, even at the 0.6%, should be, we target 1% or less, including all fund level costs. So it's a fraction of what you would normally pay if you buy a mutual fund or any other robo service. So that's five basis points to 60 basis points, yeah? Yeah, on our side, depending on what you buy, you know, what portfolio it is, whether it's a lot of advice, whether it's, you know, really low touch. So we have a range of funds, but the, the average is about 40 basis points, 0.4%. Yeah, I can see. Especially for our CPF and SRS, you know, quick plug for CPF, which is a Singapore kind of total social security system and a national pension scheme. And that was the first and only digital advisor to solve that problem of bringing online from the completely offline experience of investing your CPF money. And so for CPF and SRS, which is your long-term kind of retirement money, we lower the cost to 0.4%. So you're well below 1% all in, even if you include all the fund level costs. And the fund level costs will be lower with us because either we access the institutional fund. So it's kind of stuff that like big banks and you know sovereign wealth funds would buy rather right. than the retail fund, which has all the cost embedded. Or if we get the retail fund and the commissions are paid to the distributor, in this case ourselves, then we pay 100% rebate to the client for every cent. So we don't get paid by anybody other than the client. The fund manager mm-hmm. pays us, it goes back to the client. 100% rebate. We don't keep a single cent. And that's transparent. That's completely aligned to the best interests of the client. And no one can buy us off or try to push products on us. It's working in the best interest of the client. Do you want to comment at all? Because I, I feel like I've commented on this a lot, but I'm really curious about your perspective on a business that's very different from yours, I think about a business like Robinhood in the United States? <laughs> yeah, so Robinhood and, and the brokerage model is a very different like model, right? Very. From a service perspective. So they're For transactional, sure. which is, you know, you buy, sell stocks, and then you normally pay a commission. In this case, they don't pay a commission, right? right? So people get excited because there's zero commission. Not knowing, just like the fund distribution business, there's hidden fees and hidden costs embedded. How does Robinhood make billions of revenues is because they sell the flows to market makers and other traders ahead of being executed in the market. Like Citadel. Like Citadel, hedge funds and other players in the market. I just wanted to have somebody else say this out loud because I've been saying this for a while. There's a mythology (laughs) around, but I think you have more gravitas than I do at this point. And I think there's a mythology around Robinhood trading for free. But again, we did the same thing at Goldman Sachs. We had you know, a matching algorithm that hit the books of the, the risk desk before it went into the market. Oh, yeah, yeah. We used to do that all the time, right? Before it got banned. 
Yeah, I understand that. But when I was there, it wasn't banned. I'm just saying that there's a way to make money. It's, and we used to pay for flow on the portfolio trading desk as well. How much would you bid us for this? We'll pay you 25 basis points for it. Why would you pay to trade? Well, because I can make money seven other ways that you're not aware of. Anyway, I just wanted to be clear about that so people understood that, like how clean it is what you're doing. Precisely. It's a very different like approach and a different philosophy, right? Yeah. You know, transparency is something that is absolutely in this day and age, something that is going to make or break trust with the clients, especially when you're a direct-to-consumer investor. The difference, I guess, is that for Robinhood traders, whether it's the Reddit crowd or individual investors, you know, the difference is not that much, right? You save on like a little bit of commission, but you're doubling your money in three months, then who cares, right? So I guess... From their perspective, the consumers, they don't have as much of a problem. But in the mutual fund space where you're investing for the long term and building wealth, right. and you're not going after the 50% return or a 10 bagger, you're actually going for the steady, eddy, like, you know, 5 10% year. returns, right? right? Yep. And so if you're doing that, if you're paying 2% on that, or as some of these like really terrible insurance linked products do, they charge you like 5% plus, and you're down like minus five, minus 8% from the get-go, and you're trying to make that up, is impossible, right? And so, you know, it, it's a structural issue and it's a different business. So Robinhood, I think people need to just understand how they make money and that, you know, they're doing it in the kind of the wrong way, I suppose. And it's not transparent. So we no. need to bring it out into the light. People yes. need to understand. If they're still okay with it, there's nothing I can say. Right. right. right? As long as they're aware. Yeah. So, uh, but on this side, it's the same thing. If you bring it onto the light and you do the numbers, then unlike Robinhood or transactional brokerage services, the difference is humongous, right? <laughs> and we calculate the difference of 1%. Like if you save 1% of cost on an investment and not only returns compound, but cost compounds, that compounds that 1% per year compounds to a 245% difference over 30 years. Over time, yeah. Talking about long-term yeah. money, pension money, over 30, 50 years, that's going to compound to like a 1,000% return if you live for like, live until 1900. It seems like goals for consumer don't really have to be finding a pickup in yields, but how to minimize the cost that they're paying on the different brokers and fund managers that they're paying today. Yeah, absolutely. Great point. Because everybody focuses on the returns, but you have to remember returns comes with risk. You cannot like have higher returns and lower risk. <laughs> it's going to take more risk to get that higher return, right? Shocking. Shocking. True. True. Yeah. But and and if you're going to, if you want to lower risk, I say, oh, I want to, I'm not as, you know, I don't want to take so much risk. Then you're going to have to live with lower returns. That's it. That's just the perfectly correlated thing, risk and return. The only thing that improves it is diversification, which is the only free lunch in finance, right? Marginally. But for everything else, it just comes with the territory. But what is cost? If you can lower cost by 1%, it doesn't affect anything except better outcomes and better returns. So immediately cost is where people should focus on the most, especially when they're investing for the long term. I know that we spoke a bit about the cost side already of mm -hmm. endowers, but another important part of the coin is also yield, right? Or returns. Given today's zero rate policy in the world and quantitative easing and 
different monetary, monetary policy that's being done around the world to stimulate the economy. So how do fund managers or platforms like Endowas help customers find yields today? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yield is a direct correlation to interest rates, right? So we're in a low interest rate environment. The central banks around the world have cut interest rates to virtually zero. Yeah. There's no way to pick up yield unless, again, you take more risk. More risk. <laughs> so you'd go for high, like corporate bonds. You go for high yield bonds, uh, which are junk bonds. We don't use that anyway. We call it high yield in a fancy term, just to hide that fact that it's junk bonds. Which is not a negative thing in and of itself, but it's just, you know, not investment grade. So we, people need to understand that. That's right. what I'm saying. Again, transparency and people knowledge, like financial education and literacy, right? So that's the only way, like taking more risk in the fixed income space, right? Returns in the equity space have been fantastic. So I think that the equity space is, everybody who's invested in the equity space is sitting pretty happy. The only concern they have on that side is, Oh, the market's looking topish. Maybe I should sell because it's peaked. And, you know, that would have been the wrong strategy over the past like decade because markets have continued to deliver, right. especially in an environment where there's risk of inflation. Mild inflationary environments are actually not bad for stocks. But the other thing that's happening is that, look, we're not just investing in stocks. We're not just investing in fixed income. There's other opportunities like private equities and other alternatives. But on the other side, we have often too much cash. And, you know, the famous phrase, cash is trash right now, it's especially so, because it's not only giving you zero returns, but it's dragging your returns because it's negative yield, so, negative real yield, right? Right. Because your nominal interest rates are below zero. Nominal rates can be maybe very low or negative, but also inflation and the cost of living keeps rising, right? right. So you add that onto it and neg- real yields are negative. So what's happening is that people are, have a lot, lot more cash and some people are using it to punt on stocks or trade crypto. Some people are going out and buying like luxury goods. Yeah, even in the latest U.S. consumer spending is, is shot through the roof. So either they're spending or it's just sitting there in banks of all places. And banks struggle to lend right now. So it's just sitting there gathering dust or negatively yielding. And so you need to make even your cash do more for you. So Indowis has created products with fund managers to give you up to 1% to 2% yield, for example, through our cash smart solution. So these are like solutions we're really coming up with because clients have asked us or really need this. And it really is the right thing to do because cash is just gathering dust. So what exactly is cash smart? And interestingly enough, does it compete with Sing Life's product that also gives a 2% return, which I just thought of just now. Like I hadn't prepared that question. Yeah, no, Sing Life came up with a wonderful gimmicky product. And so initially, I think they, they gave you the 2%. Now nope. they don't. It's actually much lower. <laughs> so uh, Because interest rates have kept coming down, right? Yep. Everybody who started with high yield products, whether it's, you know, Sing Life or us or any other guys, have all revised down their numbers. So we've kept launching and like releasing innovative solutions. So the safe stuff, once again, risk and return go together. The safe stuff with zero risk of like really losing money that competes with maybe a bank deposit, we were able to generate like 0.8% or 0.9%. And we use like institutional deposit, like institutional bank deposit fund. It's called the cash fund from Fullerton. 
which is owned by Tomasek and NTUC. So very tri-quality guys who manage their own money through those funds. And then an enhanced liquidity fund, which is like a money market fund with a very little exposure to very short duration fixed income, which, which means that you actually like it's going to mature in a month or six months or very short period and you hold it until maturity. So there's no like mark to market or volatility right. in returns. It's just you capture the yield, right? Yeah. So with those products, you amortize the cost of so daily liquidity, like volatility is virtually zero and you can generate 0.8, 0.9. And compare that to bank deposits, which give you 0.05 or 0.25 if you lock it in for one year. You have to lock in the money and give, they give you 0.25, which is ridiculous. It's There's painful. no lock. It's painful and it's really bad. It's this terrible product, but people still do it because they have nowhere else to... No, uh, no alternative. Yeah. Yeah, and on yeah. the other side, they're taking that money and investing it in ridiculously risky trading strategies. But anyway, that's a different conversation for a different time. Or they're lending it out at like, you know, credit cards or 20%. Right, 18%. Yeah. Massive spreads. So so yeah, so that's that's what CashSmart is. So really safe stuff. And then we put more fixed income, short duration stuff so that we can generate. And we diversify it across like multiple funds. So the volatility is dampened which is making diversification benefits and efficiency. And then we can generate up to like 2% yield for that product. So people have you know, flocked to it because it's a wonderful product, lowers risk, gives you diversification benefits. And instead of your money sitting in the bank, it's giving you, one to, you know, 0.8 to 2% yield. We have three different products with varying degrees of returns. Yeah. Nice. Is this the most fun you've ever had in this industry? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, I'm not kidding. That that wasn't facetious, actually. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not doing as like exciting stuff as you, Michael, in that. <laughs> but I'm still. That's for true. me. This is super exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in and in my own way, I think it's really unleashing my creative spirit, and I really enjoy doing something that is much more meaningful and purposeful because this is solving real problems for real yeah. people. And even before I left, one of my biggest passions was, you know, retirement and how do we solve this problem of retirement adequacy as a society? And then, you know, public pensions and private pensions. So the global pension crisis is the biggest impending disaster. It's not COVID. It's not some tsunami or some comet falling out of the sky. Like if we continue to go this way, half of society are going to live below poverty. Yeah. You know, in Until they're 105 years old, right? Yeah. And they're going to live until 100, 105 years old. So they had, you know, they retire at 50 or lose their jobs in their forties and fifties and they have no income, no mm -hmm. source. And now it's nuclear families. So we don't even have family to support us. And the government has only so much resources increasingly. So how are we going to solve this problem? It is the single biggest generational challenge we face as a society. And so we need to get going on stuff like this. And the people who have the money, the resources, and the people and the technology, I'm talking about the big banks, guys. I'm right. talking about incumbent financial service players. And these guys are not solving the problems they're set out to do. You know, if they really sworn to fiduciary duty, and these are regulated entities, fiduciary duty is like the Hippocratic Oath, like doctors. Right. Finance is a professional industry. We're licensed, we're regulated. We're like doctors, we're like lawyers, we're like accountants. It, we should be asking ourselves a much higher call of duty, a much higher sense of, you know, fiduciary responsibility. And I don't think, I think that's really lost in this generation of financials, uh, financial service providers. I could not agree with you more. And look, one of the things that 
and this all comes through not right. But one of the things that we're trying to accomplish is to attack the problem of financial literacy because we think it's a big deal. The transparency, and I wrote this down, what you said, transparency makes or breaks trust. I think it's really important, actually. But I also think that people need to, with that transparency, people still need a little bit of education, right? They need to be literate in the things that finance can and cannot do for them. Because if they don't understand all the things that we're being, about which we're being transparent, in a way it, it matters, but it matters less. Is that fair? Absolutely. So financial education is front and center and core to the mission and vision of what Indaos is about. Awesome. So the funny thing is that we actually launched Indaos Insights, which is our kind of educational content on a website. It used to be called The No Financial Knowledge, but we didn't launch a commercial service for over a year. And we just did this like blogging on financial matters and personal finance, CPF, retirement, all of this stuff. Yep. We used to write weekly, very disciplined And what happened was SGX, which is a local stock exchange, has this annual award for financial journalism. And they nominated us for an award. (laughs) (laughs) And we're like, but we're not, we're not not journalists. We're not doing that. And it was like Straits Times. It was The Edge. It was other, like these guys and some like financial bloggers and then us. And we're like, okay, we'll we'll be there. (laughs) That's amazing. that's why it is core to who we are. We've right. done a lot of work on like video and content as well. So we have a lot of content on YouTube and you know stuff that we're trying to do collaboratively with the financial blogger community, you know, with like media, and then also with the yeah, companies like financial uh, fund management companies like BlackRock and you know Schroders and the likes. And topics wide ranging from personal finance, retirement, fire, financial independence, right. early movement. Yes crypto to why BlackRock has $9 trillion to Jameis, who's a politician here and an economist here, you know, really wide ranging topics that hopefully will help people. And to Michael's point, I think it's really important that that's, this is the demand side. So when we talk about financial education and literacy it's consumers on the demand side, they need to empower themselves, have higher literacy so that they can make better decisions for themselves. Right. But on the supply side, they need access to ETFs or passive investing or, you know, advice or low cost solutions. Or, so the supply side has a responsibility too. And that's what I'm talking about with the financial service providers. That's the supply side. Right. And if you don't solve this problem and until endows right arrived, nobody was really trying, it seemed like the supply side needs to be disrupted and we need to make, you know, find solutions. And that's what the whole fintech revolution is is to wake up the supply side so that we can provide the solutions that are necessary to meet the needs of the consumers and the demand side. And then there's a role to be played at the top, which is the regulators, right? And I think, you know, regulators need to pick up their act, especially in Asia. Among them, wonderful guys doing a brilliant job generally. But in this case, they're really not doing their job because, you know, the developed markets have already moved towards banning commissions for financial products and protecting the consumers who may not be as literate or may not have been knowledgeable as they should be, then they should be protecting them from a regulatory perspective. So all three things need to be in play. Hmm. And for the products, right, you mentioned that you are wrapping these traditionally institutional fund for retail to be able to access that. Can you share more about that in terms of how Endowas is bridging that gap to provide supply for the consumers in Southeast Asia? Yeah. 
so first of all, it's surprising, but we looked into it and we said, okay, why can't, look, I was an institutional investor. We have like GIC and other you know, organizations in the region who are institutional investors and, and they do not pay 2% to buy a fund. You know, they don't get charged a upfront sales charge to buy a fund. No, they get paid to trade, yeah. Yeah, they almost pay like, yeah, to buy, right? So is this possible? We said, we asked this fundamental question. Why do retail investors get ripped off? Why can't we get them access to the institutional funds, which are lower cost, sing dollar hedged, you know, or local currency hedged, wonderful products that we know are out there, but are not being supplied by the incumbents. We looked at it and just lo and behold, it's possible. We just group buy for them. And Dallas is the kind of the intermediary. We group buy for them. And individuals can access institutional funds or what they call clean share class funds. At least it strips out a lot of the cost that's embedded in the retail funds. It is possible. It's just they embed. Actually, that's how it used to be. They just added on all these fees on top over time to line their own pockets. So you can just remove it and we're done. So that's the first thing we did. So we went to the fund managers and said, hey, we're going to grow into a big company. We have nothing right now. Can you please give us access to institutional funds? And wonderful partners like Dimensional, like Pimco, shout out to these guys, believed in us and allowed us access. Other guys said, hey, you need to bring 10 million or 100 million before we can give you access to institutional funds. Fine. That's fine. I mean, that's how they work. That's fine. But, you know, we're already there. We're well above a billion dollars. Now everybody wants to work with us. All the fund managers that you mentioned, we work with 20, 30 fund managers, the biggest and best global and local fund managers, because these are the specialists in building product, like funds for technology, for you know, index passive funds or whatever they do. These are the guys who manufacture product. In the finance world, they call them uh, manufacturers yep. of product. And so the fund management guys manufacture the best products for us. We're like an Amazon or a Netflix you're a marketplace. We're a we're a marketplace. We're a, we're actually curate and we advise. So we're a little bit more than that. So there's levels of curation at Amazon and Netflix as well. But what we call ourselves is a platform at first, right? So we're a platform. We want to solve for all of your needs when it comes to wealth, just like Amazon solves all your retail and Netflix, you know, solves all your content needs or tries to. That's what we're going to try to do, right? So it's a, it's a very different approach, I think. So if this is a platform business that's meant to be to solve all your sort of financial wealth problems, will you distribute and sell insurance as well in a curated way? Yeah. So we, we want to focus on wealth, right? And investing part of the wealth building. Right. So insurance by definition is protection, right? So adverse outcomes. But the problem is insurance guys realized after a while that can only make so much money selling protection. So how can we make more money? And they came up with this like unit, like linked or, you know, the ILP stuff, ILP insurance linked products. And this is the saddest thing. And I'm based in Singapore, right? So just, just letting you know that Singapore buys per capita, the most insurance products in the world. Right. (sighs) And yet as a nation undercovered in terms of insurance, unbelievable. And the reason is because they keep buying this insurance linked products, which are sold as the best of both worlds. You get coverage and you get returns. But when you actually unveil it, you don't get enough coverage then versus what you actually need because it's too narrow or it's too costly. Therefore, they only give you like small pieces of it. 
And then the return piece, because of the high fees, like they take 5 to 10% upfront, then you're never going to generate the return. So after 10 years and 13 years of the biggest bull market in history, their annualized returns is 1-2%. Right. It's the worst of both worlds. You get zero return, no returns and no coverage or not enough coverage. So you ha- you, what you should do is separate insurance, which is protection. Buy your term life, you know, health coverage, whatever you need. Pick and choose what you need and just get insurance coverage. And wealth, you should invest for the long term and build wealth in the right way. Those are two completely different skill sets. It's like going to a racing driver and asking about, I don't know, how to make ice cream, you know, <laughs> at the same time as like driving. It just is completely different. So we just need to like separate the two, but we can work with insurance guys who are good, who are low cost, who right. provide really good coverage. And at scale, obviously insurance is a scale business as well. Yep. So if we can work together to build something, that is, that would be great. And especially when it comes to retirement, we need protection and the wealth building piece both. But you can probably do that with a term life simple product. That gives you like edge case, like you know, remove the tail risks in terms of protection, and then build the wealth over the long term. Mm. And we're happy to do more for clients if they ask it and they need it in order to protect their wealth or to build their wealth. Yeah. Sorry, Nat. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just gonna point out that insurance is such a an opaque market where you don't really know how much is being cut by the agents in commissions and etc. And how much you actually get in the end, right? Yeah, it's, it's again, transparency issues. Yeah. And for some reason, insurance agents kind of, I don't know, they get a, they, they have it easy for some reason. Because insurance, the word, I think naturally gives kind of this, you know, sense of trust and security and safety. They just get away with murder sometimes. So, <laughs> so let me let me give you a little bit of insight into the insurance business. I have the largest insure tech podcast in Asia by far. And one of the founders of, I won't mention his name, but one of the founders of the biggest insurance distribution companies in India said to me when he was in London and he was working as a consultant, I think at Accenture or something like that, he was just getting bored and he looked around and he said, who's making the most money? So what's the ripest for distribution? And he said, insurance agents and insurance distribution, something like 30 to 40% margins on product, yeah? Yeah. That's coming from him, not from me. That's not a guess of mine. That's an information from a guy who started the biggest insurance distribution business in India. And he said, they were driving Ferraris and I was driving like a Honda Civic and I just thought, I must be in the wrong business. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's true across a lot of countries in Asia and it's true in Singapore. So if you have an insurance agent friend, don't feel sorry for him. Like he should be buying the lunch that you have. No, (laughs) he has the house and the car of his dream. (laughs) Precisely. It's easy money. But the problem is not, I don't have any problems with making people making a lot of money and doing it in the right way. But when you're like taking a piece of someone else's future wealth, and that's effectively what you're doing. You're taking money from the retirement savings of aunties and uncles and their future well-being by charging them a very high fee on a product that doesn't give you what you're selling, right? Which is returns and wealth building and coverage, but you don't get that. Then it's a major problem. And this is why I have such an issue with the insurance agents, you know, and not all of them are like that. I know a lot of insurance agents who are very ethical, who really go out of their way. They don't try not to even sell insurance products that they don't believe in. So there are amazing guys out there who do it well, 
but I'm saying that too many or the misalignment is too prevalent. Right. And sometimes the regulators need to step in for that, right? That's right. Sam, was time I too is strong? running out fast. <laughs> you yeah. weren't too strong. We love the candid insights. But my burn, last burning question is, when are you going to open Endowas for other countries in Southeast Asia? Like Thailand. Like Thailand, exactly. yeah. So Thailand is an... I love Thailand, by the way. I, I The fact that I'm living in Singapore and I can't go to Thailand like for two years is just ridiculous, right? <laughs> um, but that's just the period of you know history that we live in. So our initial market expansion overseas will be Hong Kong. The reason is because of the similarities in the market. Right. The fact that we've built a tech platform and we've invested very heavily into it. And we want to go to a market that's the most easily transferable in terms of our skill sets. As a startup, we're not a DBS. We're not you know, an HSBC. We don't have the resources or the people to be able to expand as fast as we want to. We have amazing investors. And you mentioned Lightspeed and SoftBank, but we also have UBS and Samsung and Singtel who have invested in us recently as strategic investors. And they give us a lot of credibility, but also resources and capital to expand overseas. So we'll do it. But Hong Kong is our primary market. And then beyond that, I can't make promises. But for me personally, Thailand is way up there. I want to go to Thailand. And as a financial institution as well, Thailand is one of the most richest Southeast Asian markets. It has one of the biggest pools of pension, which we're really focused on because the first and only digital advisor was CPF. So we're in touch with people in Thailand and other people have approached us uh, to enter the market together. So if it's in the form of a joint venture, we may be able to enter the market much sooner. But you'll be the first to know now. Take note on that. Take note on that. (laughs) You'll be the first to know. I'll let you know. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thanks for being us today. Thanks so much. It was fun. Yeah, Sam, you were great. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Nat. 